1: Hi, welcome to Blog Talk Radio Safe Recovery. This is Monica Richardson, and I am your host tonight. It is June 25th, 2013, and if I sound excited, it's because I am. (laughs) I am so excited about the stuff that has happened this week, and it's all because of Gabrielle Glaser, who is my guest tonight. And uh, to tell you a little bit about her, Gabrielle grew up in Oregon, And uh, let's see, she grew up driving a John Deere combine on her family farm, listening to a mix of the Bee Gees, Marvin Gaye, Johnny Cash, and NPR. Uh, She started her journalistic career as a news assistant at the New York Times in Washington, D.C., and she worked as a reporter at the Associated Press in Baltimore, Maryland, and Warsaw, Poland. Uh, From Eastern Europe, she also reported for The Economist, the Dallas Morning News, the Village Voice, and National Public Radio. Since the 1990s, uh, Glaser has examined social, cultural, and national health trends for the New York Times, the New York Times Magazine, and the Oregonian in Portland, where she was a staff writer. Um, let's see, she has a uh, New York Times, she was a, uh, sorry, she worked as a, County Lions columnist at the New York Times, and her work has appeared in many publications including the New York Times Magazine, Glamour, Mademoiselle, ScientificAmerica.com. She taught feature writing at the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism and won the Missouri Lifestyle Journalism Award for her groundbreaking work exploring international and interracial adoption, sending black babies north. So, her new book, Her Best Kept Secret, is Her Best Kept Secret, Why Women Drink and How They Can Regain Control. This is a book we're going to talk about today, as among other things, and I am going to bring Gabrielle on right now. Hello.
0: Hi, how are you?
1: I'm great. How are you doing?
0: I'm good. I'm good.
1: It's live from Very. New York. It's Gabrielle live from Hey,
0: live from New Jersey. <laughs> New Jersey, sister. you got to get it straight. Jersey's strong, <laughs> man. <laughs>
1: I know it's New Jersey, but, you know, it's just right over the bridge.
0: <laughs> I know. I know. I know. I'll take it. We'll take it.
1: Ooh. Well, welcome, welcome, everybody. We have some people in the chat room, and Gunther's out there. Hi, Gunther and ETP. So, I'm so excited and I bet you are. How does it feel? with the, the I
0: am. I am. You know, it feels kind of unreal, actually, because as you know, you and I have been corresponding. You as a as a source and an indefatigable, you, you know, resource for the history of what I've been exploring and. So much help and correcting me on things, and and mm. you know we've been we've been at this for two and a half three years I think no three years when did we meet 2011 or 2010?
1: Uh, you know I was just taking a look. 2011 was, I think. February of 2011 is the first email that I yeah, have here. Yeah. Yeah. I was I remember talking so, to her for an hour the first time. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, so it's just been you know it's been an education for me. I I was unaware of the problems that exist in our treatment communities in our i really had no idea basically i set out to write a book about women drinking more than ever before it was something that i noticed anecdotally and my editor who is a fantastic patient woman Mm -hmm. said you know it sounds like an interesting topic why don't you look into that and, and and give me a proposal and it mm-hmm. landed on her desk, the proposal landed on her desk the day that a, a woman in, in upper, in, in New York State, upstate New York, um, had killed, well, no, she would killed seven other people herself and, and seven others right. in a car accident in which she was really, really, really blitzed. And her family insisted that she didn't have a drinking problem, even though, at you know, before noon, she was, I think she'd had the equivalent of 10 shots of vodka in her system well and yeah so that and, and the insistence that she had not had a drinking problem was really something that that i really i i really felt for the family because the stigma against women who drink too much in this country is really remarkable mm-hmm. and i wanted to explore that i'm always interested in the history of things and why we think the way we do so i set out to write this book about women drinking more than ever before and I certainly found that that was easy to substantiate. There were a lot of statistics that backed that up. I mean, mm-hmm. many, 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 many. I could go on from the level right. of you know, women being arrested more for drunk driving or um, hospitalized for alcohol overdose or whatever you want. But um, I, what really stopped me and gave me pause was when I started exploring, okay, well, here, I did this part of the research, how... How is it that they get better with AA, right? right? Because I didn't, you know, as you know, I didn't have exposure to it, and I just I started going to some open meetings, and I thought, wow, how do how does this really help a woman? It's clearly, these women here are suffering. They have you know terrible emotional problems, and they're basically told one woman I heard one woman be told to put the cotton, you know, take the cotton out of her out of her ears and put it in her mouth. I literally <laughs> heard that, and I thought to wow. myself, wow. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, especially in Jersey. How, but nobody is shy here with their emotions. But I, yeah. I, I thought to myself, how, how do people, how does this help, how does this help women? And the notion of powerlessness really kind of gave me pause. I, I couldn't really understand. I couldn't wrap my mind around that either. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I started exploring, you know, other ways in which women get better, and that led me to you which was not only are there many other ways in which women can get better, the method we rely on most heavily in this country is often extremely harmful, extremely harmful to many people, but especially to women, anybody who's vulnerable. And, you know, mm-hmm. people who are trying to quit alcohol are vulnerable. You're trying to change your life, of course you're vulnerable. Right, right. Somebody
1: just asked this question uh I think that I know the answer but um he's asking he's saying in in I guess the article it said that uh that in that AA literature says no relationship for the first year and um I know that it doesn't say that anywhere in the two old books it, it, did you find that in a piece of yes, literature yeah
0: it was in a pamphlet yeah it was a in a pamphlet yeah, it, it was, was in, in a sponsor. pamphlet a pamphlet um, yeah maybe yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's in a, it's in a pamphlet. I, I but definitely
1: nobody reads noted
0: it nobody I, reads it, Gunther. I know, but <laughs> yeah, nobody
1: reads those pamphlets. Yeah. They're so yeah. antiquated. But that's where it was. Yeah. Um. So uh, you know, yeah. So I uh, let's see. Um, I want to just uh, put a little plug. A lot of people know who are going to listen to this that there is uh, a great article that you wrote on ProPublica right now. And in the Wall Street Journal, which I ran out and bought, there's an op-ed piece uh, for your book, a huge spread on the Wall Street Journal, as well as the video on the Wall Street Journal uh, website, which is pretty awesome, right,
0: right? Yes, so, thank I, you very I, much. I'm blushing. We are just <laughs>
1: excited. I mean, there we, we tried, and uh, we tried with the L.A. Times, and they wrote a puff piece about AA. So to finally see... Um, a critical and intelligent look at this is pretty exciting for those of us who have been blogging since 2010 or two – there's people that have been at it for 10 years. But I want to ask you this. So at what point did your investigation from, you know, dealing with why upper-middle-class women or women were drinking more and more and, um, to become – you really do deal with a critical analysis of AA? What happened that kind of made you go, whoa, Besides them saying you're powerless and take the cotton, you know, tell you to shove it in your mouth in the year 2010, the fact that people were talking that way to women and people in a meeting, was that enough?
0: <laughs> um, yeah, that was actually that was actually enough because, y- you know, I mean, you and I have discussed this. I even discussed this on the air once. That, you know, I I had a depression at one point in my life, and I right. I had a therapist who was incredibly gentle and sweet and kind. And I needed that. And I could see that these, that these women were, I went to an, the first meeting I went to was an all-women's meeting, and I could see these women were, it was between Christmas and New Year's. It would have been at the end of 2010. It was between Christmas and New Year's, and they were just, they were white-knuckling it. They were just dreading New Year's Eve. They were dreading, they were so sad. There were so, one woman stood up and said, I was at home for Christmas with my family, and my family is so dysfunctional. And and I had to be with my brother who had molested me. And all I want to oh do is God. drink. I wish I was in Las Vegas and and or New Orleans. She said, I wish I was in New Orleans with a bottle of rum and my drinking buddies. <laughs> but but I'm not. I'm here. Well, I'll tell you, it was exactly that. I wish I was in New Orleans with a, my drinking buddies and a bottle of rum, and I would be so happy, but instead, I'm here with you guys. And she oh, just, wow. it was like, she had a gun to her head. It, I mean, it literally felt to yeah. me like, okay, if the reward is sobriety, this does not seem like such a great reward.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: that started, and then I started asking people I knew who were therapists. My sister-in-law yeah. is a psychologist, and she had some thoughts on it that were, that were, you know, interesting. She didn't have that much exposure to it because mostly she deals with people who are um, grieving or who are um, suffering from terrible anxiety. Mm-hmm. And But she led me to some people, and I also started fooling around, you know, looking around on the Internet. Are there other ways for, right. to get better? I found something right. for women, so, women for Sobriety, and I also found I reached out to a woman named Jeannie Long who runs Women for Sobriety or did run Women for Sobriety in Northern California for a while, um, I reached out to her. She was a little bit burned out at the time. As we all know, that can completely mm-hmm. happen with all of us. I think, you know, I, I certainly understand that now. And then I reached out to uh, Ed Wilson and, and Mary Ellen Barnes, who are licensed counselors. They happen to have Ph.D.s in psychology. Um, and they're licensed counselors who have run a program in Rolling Hills Estates that's really geared to women and geared to the problems that drive women in particular to fill their sadness with alcohol. Mm -hmm. And they kind of led me to believe, like they told me about naltrexone. Naltrexone? What's Mm -hmm. naltrexone? I'd never Mm -hmm. heard of it. Yeah. And, you know, Wilson looked at me and said, well, it's a 40-year-old generic drug that nobody's making any money off of because it is, hello, a 40-year-old generic drug. And he also, in passing, said simply, and also most doctors are not educated in any form of substance abuse medicine, any updates, any anything. They are schooled. It's a kind of a corner of their brains. And this isn't, believe me, this is not to criticize the hard-working internists who are out there and trying to mm-hmm. scramble with all the changes that we have in our society. But when they learned in medical school how to deal with addiction, they learned, you know, by by hearing 12-step therapists, 12-step they learned by going to AA meetings. One of the doctors I talked to in L.A., in LA medical school in 2004, his exposure, medical, quote-unquote, exposure to alcoholism, and that's what they called it then, was a week of AA, a week of AA. Oh as a medical my school God! Critic. Yeah,
1: you know I have. I have some. These, I'm sorry.
0: Go ahead. Yeah. No, um, but these guys. He said these guys despised having them there. There were these medical mm-hmm. students who were, you know, looking over their shoulders, and he said, "I am a religious guy. I am a practicing Catholic. Mm-hmm. But if you think my religion comes." into my mind when I'm treating somebody with diabetes, you've got another thing coming. That would be malpractice. And he said, if this is a a medical problem, Mm -hmm. why are we treating it with religion? It's one or the other, but not both.
1: Where where is he at, the doctor who said that?
0: Um, His name is Tim Norcross, and he's the one who works with... uh, and Mary Ellen. Oh, that guy, he, you know, he's here. Maybe I could, uh, you know, yeah, I could yeah. interview
1: him. So I want to yeah. just put that out there. So there was something great that happened last week, and I was invited to a mixer. A neighbor is making a horror movie, and uh, <laughs> I'm friends with his wife, and she knows I'm making a documentary. And so I went to sort of meet other crew people. So I was talking to Dr. Tyler, and his name is Doug Tyler. If anyone's listening, and they live in Santa Monica or West LA, and they need to want to go to a doctor who knows about Maltrexone. So he was like, "Tell me about your film, Monica." And I did. He knew all about it. He prescribes it all the time, and he felt my film was very, very important to get this word out. And I, I mean, it was so nice, Gabrielle, to meet someone, a doctor, who I could refer, who you know, who knew what I was talking about, and really sees that you know a lot of people don't know about it. So this is awesome. So we have somebody in your book, Dr. Nor. Can you say his name again?
0: Norcross, Norcross, Tim Norcross. Yeah.
1: Um, let's see. Uh, yeah, it, I, I think the weekend AA it is going to get stopped, and it's going to get stopped either by me or somebody else who's going to help me once I'm done and I build some kind of nonprofit and we get serious education rolling here. We're going to educate people who get a DUI, uh, people. It's nuts. It's just crazy. I, I think your mm-hmm. book is groundbreaking. I think that it's going to begin the conversation. And the way that I see it, Gabrielle, is so we've had all these blogs where you have steppers and then ex-steppers. And it's mostly sometimes you have people that are not who wind up on the, you know, who are harmed by AA. Uh, that's the only reason somebody would be on an ex-anti-AA blog, right?
0: Exactly. Uh-huh, so uh uh-huh.
1: So it's mostly us. And there's this community of, you know, I had a million I have almost a million hits this year compared to it took me all last year wow. to have a million. And I think that Orange Papers has it per month, and I think at the height of sink and Thinking, they probably had it that, right? But now right. with what you've done, thank God. I just thank God and the Buddhas and whoever and you and the people who run Wall Street Journal and the people who run ProPublica and, you, you know, everybody, your husband, everybody on this path, everybody out here who's listening, who's helped that finally this story is getting told in a way that now we went from this little pod, and it's not little, a million a month Mm at Orange Papers that are viewing and reading, a million a month that read Stinking Thinking. There's people that spend hours reading my blog. You can see who stays how long. There's been thousands of people, right? But now we've gone to millions of readership on Wall Street Mm -hmm. Journal and millions of readership uh, in ProPublica. So, we're going to mm-hmm. see the. And, and those places will not allow trolls, and they won't allow people to get out of hand and threaten people mm-hmm. like what happens on blogs. So, people mm-hmm. are going to have to act like grown ups, even though I already see some of the comments. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, <laughs> I do think mm-hmm, that if mm-hmm. Wall Street Journal or ProPublica wants to delete a post, it can. You know what I mean?
0: Right, right. But the oh, fact yeah, yeah, that, yeah. yeah.
1: Um, it, I think this is the first book. Uh, and maybe the first story since the Newsweek Journal story uh, that happened in 2007, that is number one, not self-published. So this is coming out on Simon and Schuster. You are going to get, mm-hmm. uh, you know, serious. Uh, what do you call it? Publicity, right?
0: Mm, I, I, I certainly. I mean, um, well, look, my publicist is great. She's working really, really hard, and and some really great things are happening. But, um, yeah, it, it's. I, I the more messages that I get and emails from strangers who find my way find their way to my website or they hear about this, they friend me on Facebook. I've been pretty overwhelmed by the number of people mm-hmm. who have said thank you. Um thank you and I can't wait to um can't wait to uh 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 read the book. So I
1: I finished it. I it's was really fantastic. So I'd like to get into uh, let me see. There was a couple of other questions. Let me just see if I can... Um, let's see. Uh, okay, I was really, really blown away about the history. I thought, first of all, you are a fantastic writer, and those these words that you come up I mean, I'm like, oh my God, you just are brilliant, okay? I just want to just say that if you have you know, new words for things that uh I've never thought about but um so why did Americans drink uh, what what did they i I'm sorry, what did they drink like before the eighteen fifties? I thought this was fascinating. Can oh, you talk a little bit about great, that?
0: That is such a that is so great actually. So I'll tell you um the history of that which is that the um uh the the first settlers who arrived Um, There is some debate about whether or not the Pilgrims were landed on Plymouth Rock because they were were running low in beer or not. But regardless, (laughs) basically the English drank like fish.
1: Mm -hmm. And
0: one of the reasons that they drank like fish is because nobody had figured out that proximity of your sewage to your drinking water um, actually mattered. (laughs) And people got very, very ill. You know, they got Mm -hmm. dysentery. They got – there was a terrible cholera – okay, in in colonial America – um it, okay so they they just took the ha- the drinking habits the habits with them to the new right. world which was water is unsafe mm-hmm. water can make you sick so alcohol therefore is the only alcohol and tea are the only safe beverages that you can drink mm-hmm.
1: and
0: after the boston tea party nobody was much drinking any tea because that would have been a you know a sign of loyalty to the king so people mm-hmm. just they drank their the their cider that they made, that they distilled into, not distilled, but that they let ferment and turned it into hard cider. Um, they drank tons of beer, uh, also that they made themselves. And they drank an amazing amount of spirits that they also made themselves. They all had their own whiskey distilleries. They were blotto. Yes. They were blotto. And one thing, I, I know you and I have talked about this, but it just cracked me up when I was looking for pictures of mm-hmm. colonial women drinking. Right. Obviously, we don't have very many images of colonial women, but one thing I ran across was an, a, a, a note or a, you know, a, a a footnote mentioning a beer recipe or a rum punch recipe that Martha Washington had. hmm So... I kept looking for this Martha Washington rum punch recipe. Where could I find this rum punch? And there were so many different Martha Washington rum pu- punch recipes. And as a journalist, you don't want to just, you know, quote something that you get from some restaurant that's a, you know, who has their menu online or their Martha Washington recipe online. So I thought, well, okay, I'm going to go to the source. So I got the Martha Washington cookbook. It was literally written in her own hand. It was a gift that she left to her her granddaughter for her wedding day and she had 50 recipes for alcoholic drinks including a couple of hangover cures and yeah so that's really really, it well it's it's really true especially she also had a a recipe for uh a capon ale which was something which was a a raw the meat of a raw castrated rooster that you plunged into a gallon of ale You let it sit for a couple of weeks and then you drank it. And it was supposed to be literally good for, you know, people with consumption, which was tuberculosis. So. I guess. Yeah, can you imagine? Can you imagine anything more? It's more wild.
1: Than- it's wild. So, yeah. for those most yeah. people out there don't have the book yet, but I'm lucky that I have one. Thank you for sending uh, the oh, copies to me. Oh,
0: you're more than welcome.
1: But in the middle of the book, there are these black and white pictures, guys, and you have one of Martha Washington, and with you know talking about her 500 recipes. It says here she had a collection of 500 recipes, including 50 for alcoholic drinks and even a few hangover cures. And then um, and then there's a picture at the top, early colonists drank beer, hard cider, and rum daily, alcohol was safer than water, uh, which you just talked about. Uh, then there's pictures of Lucy drinking, and uh, and then the promotion of, like, these movies, uh, I'll Cry Tomorrow with Susan Hayward, which was totally, and uh, the Days of Wine and Roses, which we both know was definitely a propaganda a film. I mean, I don't know how how would you deal with that, but I know from the research. That somebody sent me Marty Mann's uh, bio, and for sure mm-hmm. those movies were hooking up Marty Mann and A oh, with, with Hollywood.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So yeah. once we went from once we went from the 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 you know very heavy drinking that the colonists did, and it, you know I'm not it certainly wasn't their fault. They were able to come up with some of our most beautiful. A, a national Treasures, the Declaration of Independence, and they wrote that in a tavern, so they couldn't have been too drunk. But but it is funny to look at how we've gotten to to see oh these are our founding fathers. They must have been totally morally upright in every single way. We yeah. also have the idea that you know oh well Americans are so puritanical about their drinking. Well the Puritans drank too. That's all they had to drink. They just didn't yeah. like they didn't approve of drunkenness. But when as soon as we got clean water. As a nation in the 1840s and 1850s
1: mm-hmm.
0: with sand filtration that went up the Mississippi and it spread to the cities and people could drink water that was then piped into their homes if you lived in a city without fear of dying. And it was also a time when America was absorbing a great number of immigrants and many mm-hmm. of those immigrants drank very you know, moderately with their meals, and the children drank. So, you know, I'm sure we've all seen the the yeah, you know yeah, movies are where from Italian families ourselves or Greek families where alcohol is not off limits to children. They learn how to drink with their parents. They drink watered down sips of it at family mm-hmm, meals. Mm-hmm. And this outraged some newly religious white Anglo-Saxon Protestant women. Who were, they were just, they were, they were, this was scandalizing to them. And they, you know, had to put an end to this new drinking society. They wanted to clean up the country for the second coming of Christ, what they believed would be the second coming of Christ. Mm-hmm. And the first thing they wanted to get rid of was alcohol, slavery, alcohol, and they believed that women needed to be educated too. But it really bugged them that these immigrant women were drinking. They thought that that was an inc- they had seen the light of a new religion of the protestant religions that were you know spreading through the land in the middle of the 19th century and that's how we got to prohibition. Eventually they finally won out. They Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah that's a good part of the
0: book up- too. Yeah, I mean,
1: how you kind of wove—you know—you go from there, and then you go and you really mm-hmm. talk about the Washingtonians way more than in AA literature where they just mention it. Can you talk about mm-hmm. that that curve and then into the Oxford movement, then to AA? It's really fascinating.
0: Yes, the Washingtonians were a group of men in strangely they were in Baltimore, so I don't know why they called themselves the Washingtonians, but nevertheless they called themselves the Washingtonians, and they. Um, during during this religious movement which was called the Second Great Revival um, it was when we had a, the great spreading of religions such as Baptist, Southern Baptists, Baptists mm-hmm. uh, some of the mainline uh, Protestant religions, I'm blanking right now but the mainline Protestant religions were not growing, they were seen as kind of too formal for this informal new country and itinerant Preachers started going throughout the country, and they could address women directly. And women were integral in in helping settle farms and homesteads in the Midwest. And later, they were obviously in the cities, keeping house in a very specific way that they that the social mores of the day kind of dictated. Um, and oh my gosh, I just lost my train of thought. Where was I on with that? Oh, we were talking
1: about the the Washingtonians into um... oh the
0: Washingtonians okay the Washingtonians so so they so they had and into prohibition tent. I mean they
1: all kind of came together right so right? they had yeah.
0: so so right so I'm I'm backtracking here so they had these great tent revivals that were really a form of entertainment people would testify to the Lord they would get healed they would speak in tongues they would you know have all sorts of 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 uh, religious um, Outward religious emotion, and the Washingtonians mm-hmm. who had been heavy, heavy drinkers, formerly, you know, I, I guess you could call them alcoholics if you want to use that word, um, and they used this this same format of a, of a tent revival meeting, and they got up and talked about their sinful ways as it pertained to alcohol, much mm-hmm. like. The preachers would talk about their sinful ways or the sinful ways of other, and call on people to become healed. The Washingtonians were this group of, of recovering drunks mm-hmm. who banded together, and they believed that if you confessed your sins out loud and repeatedly, and in a gr- in a group setting, you would you could heal yourself and they attracted an immense number of people because yeah. it was somehow it was kind of entertaining to hear these mm-hmm. stories these drunkalogs these 19th century drunkalogs and wow. eventually they disbanded because they mm-hmm. disagreed on the abolition of slavery they allowed politicians to join their movement and the politicians came brought with them some fame that mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. not entirely helpful to the organization Right, And so that is kind of how um, The lessons of that That group had, had grown quite a bit And was very popular Everybody knew who they were in the late 19th century But they'd had political disagreement over slavery And that mm-hmm. is what essentially disbanded Those arguments disbanded the group altogether And when Bill Wilson and uh Bob Smith got together as you know members of the Oxford group. Was Bob Smith an Oxford yes, group member? Yeah, Bob. Yeah, yeah well, he was. Okay. He, uh, yeah, he was the doctor. I know. Ebby Thatcher. Yeah. Abby, Abby Thatcher was, and 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 Ebby Thatcher came to Bill Wilson and said, you know, you can only God can help you, and mm-hmm. you know, here's the format that you can use to get better. Mm-hmm. And Wilson, I don't, I don't remember if Bob Smith was a, uh, uh It doesn't matter, but. Um, so they they looked at the at the they looked at the format of what had worked for the Washingtonians, and the fame of the politicians who had joined mm-hmm. was one of its you know had led to its demise. So right. that's how they came up with okay, well we're not going to be anonymous. I mean we're going to be anonymous. We're not going to use our names, mm-hmm. and we're also not going to get into any politics because we're here for one reason alone, and that is. To save the suffering fellow, suffering drinkers.
1: But we know that they have since you know gotten very involved with. They got involved in politics right away because having read uh, Marty Mann's most of her biography, I know you know a lot of this. But I was shocked because I had I I was reading Rockefeller's life, and Rockefeller helped them not with he did give them some money. They always say, oh, he didn't help. He he turned them away. But he did lend them enough money to help with that finishing of the printing of the book, which was important. Right. But Rockefeller was a teetotaler, as so was his father from Ohio. Interesting. He was from Ohio. I read his life story. There was a long article from one of the museums, museums of I think Museum of um, Art out of New York. It came to my house like a month ago, and I was reading it. I was like, wow. I wonder, no wonder Rockefeller loved AA. When I was reading it, you could just, he thought it was it, the, the kind of faith that he had, believed that not only alcohol was evil, that Hollywood was evil, going to see a play was evil, movie, moving pictures right. were evil. I mean, these were really boring people. So the only thing would be interesting is if <laughs> the fucking drunk stories. You know what I mean? That's all they right. had. And women right. I guess, you know, exactly. uh, get exactly. get away but with that.
0: Another th- but another thing that's interesting is that the Women's Christian Temperance Union, a lot of this stuff comes from Ohio. The Women's Christian Temperance Union was born in Ohio. Those were the women who, who you know, ultimately helped lead the country into prohibition. And Akron, Ohio, is where AA started. So the roots yeah. of this kind of, well, drinking is the root of all evil, and then you add Rockefeller's money to that, it's yeah. not a coincidence. It's, it's, well, it's, really, it's really not a coincidence. Right.
1: Right, but here's the other thing, too, that if they say, you know, they didn't want to get involved in politics. They did, because when Marty Mann came along, and she came along pretty fast, she knew everybody. She knew the head of Coca-Cola. She knew Mr. Ford. Right. She was a, well, I was so shocked, Gabrielle, as I began the research myself doing the film, that she knew all the top people. There was no grassroots movement with AA, okay? They went to the top systematically. She gave talks like 500 talks in her little dress, you know, and she went out and like, you know, a little hair bob, whatever, and making, you know, being an alcoholic, like an okay thing. But I mean, it's it was really very, very involved in politics, which then moved me to my next question that I did not know till you told me and you talk about in your book is the Hughes Act. Can you talk about the Hughes Act?
0: Yes, absolutely. So in the um in 1970 in the late 1960s these guys were coming back fried from Vietnam. They were strung out on heroin, they were drinking too much, they were utterly unwelcomed by our society and they were traumatized, of course. And there were very 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 few alcohol treatment centers of any kind. There were really there were very there was very little of anything. There was a little bit of AA, but It really hadn't taken off Mm -hmm. exponentially by a long shot until this guy named Harold Hughes, who was a Democratic senator from Iowa, who had gotten Mm -hmm. sober through AA, Mm -hmm. saw legitimately, I I will say this, legitimately I I think he did see these guys come back, and they were completely strung out. There was no place for them to go. The VA was overwhelmed. And Mm -hmm. he essentially strong-armed Nixon, into passing a strong-armed I don't know what he what is how how tough he was with Congress but he he eventually convinced everybody that we needed to establish another uh, wing of the National Inst- Institutes for Health which would be called the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism the NIAAA mm-hmm. and it would unleash money to do research on yep. alcoholism and also it helped fund several centers and with this funding that it kind of opened up the passage of the Hughes Act which also essentially established nationally that alcoholism was a disease and that it would be discriminatory To fire someone from a job or to Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, not hire somebody if they had this physical problem in the same way that it would be against the law to, you know, fire somebody for having red hair. Right, right. And so on one hand, it was a genuine effort to try to, established that the, you know that people who who drank too much were legitimately deserving of help of help but what it did was establish these guys including Hughes who saw an opening and established left the senate in 1970 once the Hughes act was established or once mm-hmm. it passed mm-hmm. and again it opened up employee assistance programs it they, essentially it didn't demand them but uh, suddenly large mm-hmm. companies needed something that was going to help people with these issues, whether it was drugs or alcohol or mental illness and insurance companies suddenly had to sit up and kind of fly right and pay, pay for somebody to go off to rehab. If it was an established disease, then suddenly insurance companies were going to have to pay for it and what were you going to put in all of these rehab centers that were popping up nationwide? Well, you were going to put in AA, which is what had helped Hughes and what the other congressman who had become sober through the program had also been helped by it. And suddenly there was a lot more interest in AA. It it really began flooding popular culture. You're the one who told me about the Diary of a Teenage Alcoholic with uh, Linda Blair. Yeah, yeah. And... To make these movies, I mean... Uh, yeah, I, you know, I knew started um, showing up on it. Started showing up on 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 television shows, and right, right. suddenly the the population of AA, the membership of AA, grew exponentially between the late '60s and the early '1980s. Uh,
1: with that, I just want to read some figures here. That's right out of your book on page 101. It says in 1972, the NIAAA budget was 84.6 million. By nineteen seventy five that figure was one hundred and forty six million. In nineteen seventy-three there were roughly eighteen hundred treatment facilities. By two thousand and nine, that number had jumped to more than thirteen thousand five hundred, nearly a third run by for profit companies. In two thousand and twelve the NIAA's budget was four hundred and sixty-nine million. Um, much of the alcohol research supported with federal dollars focused on the 12-step approach. So the NIAA budget, $469 million. What is that money spent on? Do you know?
0: Well, uh, yes, actually, I do. There is a lot of research that is done. And I, you know what? I shouldn't even speak to this because I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not really qualified to, to answer yeah, this question. Yeah, interesting, a, though. Huh? A, That's a big number. Well, there is a... Well th- that's a huge number and I know for example that the government conducted the the match project match study which was supposed to match a person with the proper treatment mm-hmm. um and then the project combine study which mm-hmm. did look at naltrexone the the results of that were issued in the in the 1990s late yeah. 1990s it no, or maybe later in the 2006 I think it started in the late 1990s and those studies, one of the combined study was a thirty million dollar study over Whoa. many many years.
1: Oh my god! And gosh. it
0: found, and it found that naltrexone combined with medical management was a far mm-hmm. more effective treatment than any twelve step program could ever oh, be. Oh
1: wow! Where's that? And
0: well, we, I'll get it from you for my films. We've, 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 we've we to, we to, yeah, we've, we've, yeah, we've talked about that, but, but. Mm. But where does that where does that research go? Who's paying attention to that? Why did is that is that being covered in 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 the in in the press? Are people hearing about it? Are doctors oh, no. who are no, but, no longer mm-hmm. in medical school, doctors who are no you know not in medical school, where who's learning about that? Mm-hmm. If you talk about Naltrexone to people, Naltrexone, um, I know you wanted to ask me that, so possibly I'm jumping the gun here, but Naltrexone yeah, go is ahead, a drug. Go, go right to it. Mm. Naltrexone is a drug that was uh, uh, discovered or, or invented or adapted in the early 1960s as a as an opioid antagonist. And mm-hmm. that means that if you are on an opiate, you're on morphine or percocet or or whether it's a, a chemical version or the, the 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 natural version, whether it's mm-hmm. know, opium itself, mhm. Your body is the the when you ingest the substance, your body, your brain makes produces endorphins, and it makes you really happy if you happen to have it makes you euphoric if you happen to have you know if if if, if that's your drug of choice. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. this drug, naltrexone, blocks the receptors that allow the drug to get to that those. That that part of your brain, so you're not going to produce the euphoria. You can take the drug, but you're going to have no effect from it. Right. So right, right. rather than rather than use the drug called Antabuse, which was discovered by accident for by yeah. Swedish researchers, right. which makes you vomit. It's a very right, punitive a form one. of right. yeah, it makes you vomit if you drink, and so it's mm-hmm. a form of kind of aversion therapy. Right. You know that you do to yourself. This is a drug that allows you to kind of wean yourself away from the drug itself. If you take the drug, let's say you are, you know, fairly heavy drinker and you drink three drinks a night, and you're waiting for the high that you like. That you're wait a minute, three drinks a
1: night is not a lot. Like from everybody's. (laughs) talking about two bo- people who were calling right i mean even in your book they're drinking two bottles a night or like 15 okay, right, right, right. so, beers so I'm, right
0: I'm, i actually did you hear me i kind of faltered with that because <laughs> by the us standards yeah that talk is about that <laughs> Right, by talk the us, about the US we'll get back standards the, we'll get we'll get yeah we'll get back to the naltrexone. the naltrexone the naltrexone if you take that if you if you take a pill i don't know if you take it a half an hour before an hour one, before one hour before, before. it's supposed to be my, one hour like your okay. doctor said. So, Doctor Taylor okay, said, so "One hour before you you know you're going to be drinking, you're going to not have the reward of the second or third or fourth, wherever it is that that's your cutoff point that you regret. Let's say you regret it if you've had four drinks, mm-hmm. and the naltrexone makes you regret it sooner because there's no point. It's like a drug that makes you. I don't know if I can explain this well, but it's like a drug that makes you full, like." Wild horses couldn't make you eat more ice cream if you're really, really, really full, right? I guess for some people that's not true, but. but, Yeah, do you I, follow I
1: the that, logic. Well, I know because I've interviewed, I spent a lot of time talking with Gunther, who used it very successfully. Uh-huh. I interviewed him, uh, you know, went from 16 beers a day, I think, down to six, and then was able to quit, which he wanted to be absent. And then now we have uh, Claudia Christian, who I had on, the actress from Babylon 5. She did not want to quit, and she went from over-drinking to uh, moderately drinking, and she's very excited about, uh, you know, using it, but it was really important. She said it was terrible because the doctor was saying, take it first thing in the morning, which actually Gunther told me was told to him, which was the wrong thing to do. It made you irritable or, you know, whatever. You take it one hour before... And it's an anti. Uh, what you said, uh, the first wording that you used, which is what um, an
0: opioid opioid antagonist. But what if right, it what right. does it blocks the cravings? It blocks the cravings for over drinking.
1: Right, right. It now allows have, you. Yes, yeah, sweetie. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, that people no. It allows chatting you, and in their in the chat room uh, talking about all kinds of stuff. I wanted. I, I'm looking at this page though in your book that. Uh-huh, uh, well, I'm on page and 100. And the title, and the
0: title of it. Well, we mentioned it before, but it's it's called Her Best Kept Secret.
1: Yes, I, I did. I said yes. it before you came, but let's say it again. So I, you know what? I, I can't believe it. I am talking to Gabrielle Glaser, and she has written the book Her Best Kept Secret: Why Women Drink and How They Can Regain Control. All right. So that's who we're talking with, folks. And this book is uh, you go on to Amazon, and you can pre-order it now. And I have a copy in my hot little hands, and I love it. Now. This The whole part about the Hughes Act, it's on the left side of the page 100, but when it comes down to here about, uh, na, 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 let's see, um, a, the AA view of alcoholism was ideally suited to the profit needs of the rehab industry. Counseling mm-hmm. could be delivered by people whose main qualification was having recovered from hitting bottom uh, through a strict adherence to the 12 steps instead of hiring a staff of highly paid doctors Rehab centers could rely on laymen with life experience. The counselors established a group called the National Association of Alcohol Counselors and Trainers in order, as one of the founders said, to make alcoholism counselor trainers look professional. Now, I wanted, with that note, I want to ask, because I know what's happening in California. In New Jersey, do you need to have a background check if you are going to work as a counselor? Do you know?
0: I do not know that. I saw that yeah. question too, too. Mm-hmm. I do not know that. Yeah. But in most cases, in most cases, people go off to these extremely expensive rehabs. You know, they're costing more than a thousand dollars a day. Mm-hmm. And the treatment they receive, the you know, the, the 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 front line treatment they receive is delivered by counselors, many of whom have a GED and that's certainly no disrespect to folks who have a GED but <laughs> where is that payment going where is that payment going if you're not going to pay if that's not going to pay the high salary of a highly trained highly educated professional mhm where's that money going
1: oh into so the that, into the investors pockets into like if of uh, somebody when i first was on Stinkin' and there was somebody Back in it must have been 2010, who was talking about not the senator, not the Hughes uh, guy, but someone more recently who was in, who was also in AA, who had invested in a for-profit rehab up in either upstate New York or Connecticut. And they what they do is they get this stuff passed, and then they step down and they they go make millions off of charging. I mean, when we looked at Carla's stuff. Carla Brada, a thousand dollars a day, for a rehab oh, it was, it was in a house. It was more than that.
0: It, it yep. was more yeah. than that it, because it was forty two thousand dollars a day. I mean, forty two thousand dollars for a month. Forty two thousand dollars for a month, where she slept on a mattress on the floor in a looked like a flop house.
1: It's, it's disgusting. It's just disgusting. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk about uh, chapter, six. <laughs> chapter six. Chapter six. <laughs> chapter six. Chapter six. So for six, those of you guys. <laughs> Those of you out there, uh, Chapter Six is called the Thirteenth Step, and it starts off. It, what I want to thank you so much because what what Gabrielle has done here is documented the work that I did and that we did out here to actually trying to make a safer internally, and she weaves all the different stories. Uh, you want to talk about it? Uh, how you? It was really great though how you you know deal with the Paul Cleary thing and with the Newsweek thing. Uh And I really thank you so much and your your peeps back in <laughs> Simon and schuster <laughs> that, that felt like this is important story because it felt like it was tough stuff to deal
0: with well it was and i'm 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 glad that they were felt brave enough to to publish it as well because you know where where i i tell the story of your journey through understanding this issue of of being 13 stepped, having suffered from uh, 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 unwanted advances in, as a young woman and in AA, and how you saw that continuing to occur as late as 2009, and how mm-hmm. upset you were, and what you tried to do as a as a loyal Member of the organization, and someone with withstanding, and you know, with more than thirty-five years of sobriety at that point, mm-hmm. you you really tried. You really tried. You're, you were. I think I told you early on. You are a classic whistleblower. You were upset. You you were astonished by the mm-hmm. by the the acts that you had had seen. You were astonished by um, w- what you heard from Cali, what you heard from others, what you Mm -hmm. documented with your your video camera. And then you met Paul Cleary, and Mm -hmm. you saw that he shared the same concerns, and he had approached the board with this impassioned plea to try and do something. Please, we need to pay attention to this. We have a, a, a duty and an obligation, a moral obligation to fix this. AA has fixed it in Australia and AA has fixed it in England. Not fixed it, but they have yeah. acknowledged it as a problem and right. put warnings in place. And actually, in Australia, they the language of the of the behavioral guidelines that they put forth in, in the year 2000 calls for people to call the police. Mm-hmm. It's a legal obligation to call the police if you see something. Being committed under the mm-hmm. guise of our organization, mm-hmm. if you find sexual sexual uh, uh, predation or financial predation or even bullying, mm-hmm. you have a moral obligation and probably even a legal one to call yeah, the cops. Yeah, it was
1: a really good piece of paper. I thought that when when I was given those two pieces of paper, the one especially Australia because it was a one pager that was like, really thorough, just yeah. like you said. And then the yeah. U.K. was the story and stuff. But I, w- I thought, oh, for sure, everybody all the way to the area. Like I would go to my district, and they would all want to discuss and say, yay. And then I would go to my, uh, you know, the area here, Big Area 5, which is covers a lot of area. And that wasn't the case. Uh, one of the things I want to read right out of her book, uh, page 135, um, this was taken from Paul Carey's uh, letter. Um, Paul listed several examples of sexual abuse which he had direct evidence, and they included a 35-year-old woman was raped at age 15 by a member in his 20s. Her sponsor told her to pray for him. A woman with long-term sobriety asked for guidance after learning that a man in AA had molested her daughter. Mr. X advised her to go to the police, but the woman feared, breaking AA's promise of anonymity to the abuser. The third one, another woman said she had been tied up and raped by a man who broke into her house after meeting her in AA. Her sponsor told her to forgive him. And the fourth is, a speaker at an AA convention was found having sex with the 15-year-old daughter of another AA member attending the convention. Now, when I read his, he, he sent this to me first in email. It was seven pages long. I read it and I was almost sick. And I ran to my meeting, I had made copies, and I said, "We need an emergency business meeting that what Callie and I were finding, which were rapes uh, and a lot of abuse, but we were, you know we were being told that the women were being raped and they weren 't going to police, um, I read this, and the whole group was upset, and that we should which is then why we had a make a safer workshop, but to have this." Whole thing, as well as his stuff, I think documented is very powerful for people who have been harmed, and there have been many, Gabrielle, many, many. I think we're going to see with what you're doing, uh, and you know this piece and this book coming out, and the the piece that's on the Wall Street Journal and the video that's on the Wall Street Journal, and Mm -hmm. the ProPublica piece, that we're going to see. A lot of us think that there's millions of
0: women who've been harmed.
1: Yes, because, yeah. you know, yeah. then you have a lot of DUI people who are pissed off, people who were bullied, people who were told, really, my people who were told not to take their antidepressants if they couldn't take their medication. Right. Right? Then you have families right. of people like this who've lost their children from suicide, like Ryan and his sister, oh, Sarah. Oh,
0: absolutely. Last year? Absolutely. So I'm talking well, yeah, with
1: Gabrielle Glazer, who wrote her best kept secret Why Women Drink and How They Can Regain Control. Available uh, on Simon & Schuster, available at Amazon. Please buy a copy for yourself. Buy another copy and give it to a doctor, to a lawyer, to a therapist. Um, Wow. It's really, really wonderful what you've done.
0: Oh, thank you. I couldn't have done it without you, you know, without your... Candor and your willingness to talk about this. This is not that. Look, no one is proud if they have had a problem with alcohol or drugs or any other unsavory issue that a society, you know, the society views as unsavory. It's embarrassing to talk about. It's it's painful. It's embarrassing to acknowledge that you made mistakes. It's 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 it's, it's painful. In some cases, it's career damning, um, and. Uh, you know, they're so. I, I, I'm, I'm so moved by the number of women who've contacted me using their full names and saying, mm. you know, it's, I, I've had this problem. Thank you for writing about this. It's about time that somebody said something. And wow. maybe because, maybe because I was never on the inside and because, um, I, 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 I didn't have exposure to AA in my life. I could look at it. Very skeptically, as a as a journalist, and say, I mean, I'm skeptical skeptical about all kinds of things, and I didn't have skepticism about this because it's in a different compartment. Well, alcoholics take care of themselves, they take care of themselves at AA, and that's all you need to know. And as somebody who's a curious person and you know, really frequent bullshit caller, yeah, I was shocked. I was shocked at how much of the message I had internalized myself, up to and including the disease theory, up to and including that you had to hit bottom before you yeah. could get better. That's yeah. nonsense. Right. That's like saying right. to somebody that's right. like saying to somebody who 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 who's, you know, two hundred and fifty pounds and has a cholesterol count of of 300. You know what? Let's just wait. You should keep eating cheeseburgers and, and 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 milkshakes because we're gonna need to we're gonna need to help you when you have a heart attack. Wow. That's ridiculous. You don't. We don't. We oh don't.
1: yeah, 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 yeah. That's the part that I loved in the beginning, in the very beginning. Oh, that's a great analogy too that you didn't write in here, but you know where you say that you had you know sinus problems and it's like going to a group. Uh, right in the beginning, it's like one of the, it's maybe a yeah. the talk where you would explain like yeah, you know no, going, yeah
0: at some point yeah, yeah. it's right it's, go ahead it's true I I have sinus problems and I've had five surgeries I have to have you know, luckily I'm I'm much better now than than I w- mm-hmm. was when at, at the depth of my illness but. You know, it's a chronic thing that I have to manage, and I have a doctor who who trusts me and who likes me, and who it doesn't matter that he likes me, but of course that you know that 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 counts for something. But he, i am am a I'm a, um, a col I'm not a colleague, but but we have a collaborative relationship, and key word being he's a medical professional. Who has training to deal with my particular condition, and do would I be helped at the, would I have been helped at the worst of my illness where I was almost died from an infection? Would I have been helped going to a support group uh, for people also with terrible sinus problems? Maybe, but I just wanted to get better. I just really wanted to get better, and I wanted a doctor to help me get better. And I knew I I wasn't going to get better in a church basement or on a support group. Maybe it could have helped augment the therapy that I was getting from a doctor, but it wasn't going to cure me.
1: We have just two minutes left. I don't know if I've ever told you about Keeper, whose son was murdered by his sponsor, in the Northeast. Did we ever talk about her and her story?
0: I saw, she friended me on Facebook and I saw her, um, I saw some of your footage that you showed me at one point. Oh,
1: that's right, that's right. So maybe yeah. uh, there can be some connection. That story uh, was also really suppressed and it happened over 10 years ago, but she'll be in my film. Um, I, so I want to thank Gabrielle from the bottom of my heart. Um, uh, Gabrielle Glaser is uh, here with us We'll have you on again Maybe in another month after the book has been out Her best kept secret Why women drink and how they can regain control It is an awesome book Uh, Please get it Uh, Like I said guys It's really a a great read And uh, I really laughed out loud for some stuff But you know Gabrielle It took a lot of courage for you I think to Well I don't know I mean I think you're a very strong woman but uh we see the people writing stuff on the um you know, the places and all that that uh you have all kinds of people talking about it, and you got the conversa- conversation going and so well, um go ahead.
0: Yeah. i wouldn't have wouldn't have done it without you and as I said to you earlier, courage is contagious, and mm. I think we can all i think we can all uh um uh you know just kind of think about that message and 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 do what we can. Oh, thank
1: you. Thank you. Thank you so much, sweetie. Yes, we'll uh, have you on again, Uh, and I look forward to the release of the book. Thanks. Great. uh, Thank you so much, Gabrielle. So we'll see you soon.
0: Thank you so much for having me. Okay, all right, take care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Bye. Bye. All right, everybody, we'll see you next week. It'll be another
1: show, and uh, good night. Thanks all for all the support. God bless. Bye.